God that we're able to worship Him. You know, our theme this year is on outreach, okay? And so we talk about the greatest love story ever told from creation to Christ. So we covered this whole redemptive story in the Old Testament. And we realize throughout history, God is only doing one thing. And if He's only doing one thing to reveal His redemptive story, uh, it is good for us to align with that one thing. Every year, we try to cover the Old Testament and New Testament. And so in the second half, this year, we are covering the book of Galatians. What it means to live a gospel-centered life. It's about outreach, it's about the gospel, but what does the gospel mean? You see, the theme is the just shall live by faith. And so we began, the Apostle Paul reminds us that the gospel is a revelation of God. Um, oh, yeah. Um, it's God's revelation, right, that it's not for us to add onto it or to subtract from it. The gospel, Paul says briefly in his introduction to Galatians, is that Jesus came to save us from this evil age. And then we saw that the gospel reveals the grace of God. We are saved by grace, but friends, as we continue our journey with Christ, it's also by grace. We may stumble, we may wrestle, we may have doubts, but it's the grace of God that sustains us. And so we need to respond by faith. The phrase, the just shall live by faith, was first given to Habakkuk in the Old Testament and is repeated three times in the New Testament, both of Romans, Hebrews, and Galatians. And in Galatians, it's emphasis on what does it mean to live, to just shall live by faith. How do we live? We respond in faith. And we realize it's not just for us because uh, last week we saw is as we respond in faith is through Abraham, God's promise to Abraham that all nations will be blessed. Now, we respond by faith, but faith in what? Well, faith in God. What kind of God? God who is distant, who is uncaring? No. So that's why today, immediately, uh, Paul would say uh, that we are children of God. God is our Father. And so how do we sustain our walk with, uh, as, as Christians to follow Christ? First is to remember our identity as children of God. And then Galatians 5 is the Holy Spirit in us that helps us. Galatians 6 is our community life, the church life. We cannot do this by ourselves. We need people around us. So today we're looking at Galatians 3, 26. The gospel results in sonship. You know, when I do this, maybe you need to click. That I am a child of God. Galatians 3, 26, you ask, uh, yeah, who am I? So let us pray. Father, we just commit this time to you. I pray for the Holy Spirit to move in us to help us understand the love of God um, in our hearts so that we may respond to live lives worthy to be called your children. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, there were two cows grazing the fields and then there was this milk truck that drove by and there had this advertisement on it that says, um, organic milk, homogenized, pasteurized, reinforced with calcium, vitamin A, B, C, D, E, F, G. And one of the cows sighed and said to the other, said, that makes you feel inadequate, doesn't it? It's as if milk is not enough, no, you still add this, add that. And sometimes that's how we feel. I'm not good looking enough, I wish I had bigger eyes, more muscles. I'm not good enough, I wish I had a different job, I had someone to love me, I had children. And when we feel all these inadequacies, as if you're not good enough, really is a question of identity. So we ask, who are you? I'm a student, 
I'm a father. No, those are your roles, not your identity. I am not so good at my studies, you know, or I'm very good at my job. Those are your abilities. See, when we mix our identity up with our abilities, our roles, that's where we get into trouble. If our identity is built on our work, then if you're passed over for promotion, if your business is not doing well, we become anxious. We get angry. Why didn't that person recognize me? Why did this person do this? If our identity is built upon our children, we want them to raise a certain way, behave a certain way, we get into trouble, right? Maybe sometimes at the expense of our marriage relationship. This friend I shared with you before in his 50s, his son, he has bad relationship with his son. Son is in his 20s, he's a doctor. And when I asked what happened, he says because he used to be very harsh to his children. And I was surprised because this is a very gentle fella. You know, he's very gentle, his wife, his friends, he's a church elder. But he says somehow when it comes to his children, you know, they, they lit a fuse in him. Especially when they misbehave in his parents' home. And it's only in recent years he realized because in his mind, he is the perfect child to his parents. He's a good, good son. And somehow he projected this upon his own children. And so when they misbehave, especially in his mother's home, he would just get set off. See, when we mix up our roles, our abilities with our identity, that's where we get into trouble. And so this is what I would like to ask to think about today. Who am I? More importantly, who am I in Christ? Galatians 3, verse 26 to 4, 11. We'll say, who am I? Secondly, so what? So Paul goes on to say, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have clothed yourself in Christ. He says, we are all sons. Immediately, he says your identity. We are children of God. Why? Because right before this, he says you have to have faith. Faith means trust in something. What is your object of faith? God. Who is God? Unloving, distant, sovereign. He says, God is our Father. That's the relationship. So what does it mean? What are the implications of being children of God? First, that we are in Christ. We're baptized into Christ. Many times we think that Christ is in us. But you know the Bible is the other way around. In Galatians, eight times it's mentioned we are in Christ, which means the death, resurrection, all the benefits that come from what Jesus has done is given to us. When God sees us, He sees us through Christ. So how do we become in Christ? He says we are baptized into Christ. Now this isn't referring to water baptism. Even though uh, water baptism is important, but it's a reflection of our spiritual inner reality. You see, why is it that it says when Jesus comes, He comes to the power of the Holy Spirit. He baptizes in the Holy Spirit, right? John the Baptist says, I baptize with water, but the Messiah comes baptizing in the Holy Spirit. Because Jesus begins the era of the new covenant. The new covenant is characterized by the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit indwells in believers forever. Comes onto us and He stays in us. Unlike the Old Testament, He comes, they do what they do, and then He leaves. Okay, so here, to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. We, when we are baptized in the Holy Spirit is when we are truly born again to become a new creation. We are baptized in the Holy Spirit into this invisible body called the church. At that moment, 
we receive the seal, we are sealed in the Holy Spirit, meaning the Holy Spirit lives in us. And so all these are synonymous events. They have different results, but they happen at the same time. And so in water baptism is supposed to reflect this spiritual reality. So as Baptists, we believe the best mode of, bap- of baptism is immersion, right? Because it signifies the, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ. You know, though, even though I say this, but uh, when I was baptized, I was actually sprinkled. And then as a pastor, when I do baptism, I, I immerse people, you know, even though I was not immersed. Because I feel, well, that gives the best image of what baptism means. And so when I joined UBC, I had to get rebaptized. But it's not rebaptized, I say re-immersed. Okay, because it doesn't mean your first baptism doesn't count. But if we felt that God has led us to this body, then we should submit to the authority of this body. So we are in Christ by baptism in the Holy Spirit. And then he says, because of that, we have clothed yourself with Christ. The image here is of a, a Roman young person who has come of age. They have this ceremony where he receives a toga, a, cl- a long robe, to say that now you are finally a full member of the family. And so we are clothed in Christ. Is what it means that uh, no longer taking on the robe of righteousness by the law, but the robe of righteousness through Christ. So in Christ, not only in Christ, you are one in Christ. So it goes on to say, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free man, there's neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ. And then the Roman society was a divisive one between men and women, slave and free men, Jews and Gentiles. And Christianity came along and says, no, we are all equal, of equal value in the sight of God. You know, the Athenian woman or the Greek woman had no rights to education, no rights to speak in public. The Jewish woman is a bit better, but not that much better. There's an ancient Jewish prayer. It says, I thank God that you have not made me like a Gentile, a slave, or a woman. Wow. Josephus, who was a Jewish general, became a prisoner of Rome and became a historian. He wrote, a woman is inferior to a man in every way. And that is why when Christianity came along, women flocked to the faith. Rodney Starks, a church historian, estimated 60% of the early church were women. And they contributed greatly to church growth and eventually whole of Rome coming to faith. After all, Constantine's mother, Alina, was a devout Christian. When they became believers, firstly, a majority of them brought their children to the church, raised them within the church. A majority of them stopped practicing abortion, which was very common in the Roman world, and infanticide, which was totally acceptable. means you don't like the baby, you just throw it away. Of course, usually the baby has some disabilities or they are female. And so, if once they stop this as Christians, we stop this, of course, then there's a lot of church growth, right? Organically. And a lot of them are women because they begin to save those female babies. And so I find it a bit ironical today, right? From the world's point of view, when they view the Christian faith, that, you know, we are, uh, that, we, that we feel that women have no, not equal to men. Why does the world think this way? I think as the church, we need to reflect deeply and to repent. Not on the other hand, if we do not believe in God, we have to ask ourselves, why should women and men be equal? Now, during the Palestinian-Israeli conflict, we always hear this, we need to protect the women, the children, and the old people. It's correct, but don't you find it a bit strange? 
What happened to the men? You mean men don't need protection? Or they deserve to die? What gives us the right to decide who has value, what is not? Why do we say that? Does it make you more humane? See, if we do not believe there's God, there's no inherent value or dignity to every human being, which means might makes right. Whoever has the most missiles wins and gets to rewrite history and is correct. The fact that you don't think this way is simply your own preference. You have no moral superiority to make that statement that we need to protect the woman and the children and what have you. Again, I'm not saying that people who don't know God are immoral. No. More often than not, it's the opposite. If I don't believe there's God, there's still this inner need to justify my existence. Hence, I want to do good. I want to do justice. I want to love people. To prove, to fill this, this void inside me. Moreover, if I only have this one life, I better do it well. So more often than not, we find that people who do not have faith, the secular man, is of compassionate, believes in social justice. So what I'm saying is that when you do not believe in God, your choices, your belief that social justice is important, you do not have a worldview that is consistent to the choices. On the other hand, as Christians, we say we have the correct worldview. Right? Everyone is made in the image of God. They have inherent value, equal dignity. But do we behave that way? Maybe we also need to repent. I think both need repentance. So Paul here, Paul here says the gospel makes us equal, one in Christ. No more division, we're of equal value. To be a child of God means to be in Christ, to be one in Christ, to be descendants of Abraham in Christ. He goes to say, and if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants as according to promise. Again, he brings up this idea that because of Jesus, now we are Abraham's descendants. It shows us that the gospel, you know, didn't just pop up when Jesus came. It was God's plan all along from the beginning. Through Abraham, this one man, all nations will be blessed. Right? And so, even today, that's God's plan. That all nations will be blessed. Through whom? Through Abraham's descendants. Who are they? the church. By us living out the gospel that all nations will be blessed and they too can become children of God. So friends, when we enjoy our status as a child of God, it's not for you to hide at home or in your one corner in your office and in your school or in, within the church and feel good and comforted that, oh, I'm a child of God, I have hope. It is meant for us to be a witness, to lift out our, our identity so that all nations will be blessed. So first, Paul's first point, who am I? I am a child of God. It's about our identity because it determines our beliefs and actions. You know, the movie Stand and Deliver is based on this outstanding teacher called Jamie Escalante. In his first year of teaching, there were two boys called Johnny in his class. Good Johnny finishes his work every day. Bad Johnny never does his homework, is a bully, and no one wants him in class. One day during a parent-teacher meeting, a woman came up to Escalante and said, I'm Johnny's mother. So assuming there was good Johnny's mother, he says, oh, I'm so glad to have your son in class, you know. It's so, so much fun to have him. It's such a pleasure. The next day, bad Johnny came up to him and said, you know, last night my mother came back from the parent-teacher meeting and told me what you said to her. And then he says, no one has ever said that to me before. So that day, he finished his homework 
and the next day, and the next day. And within the month, he became the hardest working student in class. Why? All because of a case of mistaken identity. Suddenly you realize, wow, actually I'm so, people love me, you know. What about us, you know? Do we have a case of mistaken identity? Who are you? I, I am a, a, a banker. Uh, I, I do, I'm an engineer. This is what you do. I, I'm, I'm good at this. I'm successful. Or oh, I'm not successful. Nobody loves me. I, I cannot study. That's how we feel, but that's not how God looks at us, right? He sees us as His child. When we mix up our roles, our abilities with our identity, that is when we get into trouble. Think about Moses. For 40 years, he was the prince of Egypt. He thought he, was in, he has the abilities and is put in place to save his fellow countrymen, the Hebrews. He messed it up, killed someone, had to flee for his life, and spent 40 years in the wilderness as a shepherd. And then God came to look for him and says, now you go save my people. And what did he say? I cannot. It's either he was overconfident in himself or now he has no confidence. But God corrected him. So there's three. Moses said to God, who am I? Who am I to deliver them? If I could have 40 years ago when I was prince of Egypt, I, I would have. And what did God say? God says, I, I will certainly be with you. God assures Moses of his presence. And then Moses continues to say that, yeah, you know, when I go there, they'll ask me who sent me, who Shall I say to who sent me? And God says, I am who I am. And okay. God again told him that who am I? I am who I am. And again, he um, finds an excuse. He says, what if they don't believe me? God says, okay. Go and perform this miracle. Again and again, God assures Moses of his presence. And then he says, okay, but you know, I'm not eloquent. Again, his ability, I, I can't speak. And God reminded him, well, who made the mouth? Right? I did. So go. And finally, Abraham says, I know Abraham, Moses says, now send a message by whomever you will. Now this is not submission obedience. This is say, please send someone else. Right? That's why the next verse, it says, God got angry. With Moses, and God said, okay, I will send Aaron. You see, when we mix up our identity with our abilities, we either become overconfident or we have no confidence. But Scripture says we need to see ourselves through the lenses of God. Who am I? I am the child of the Most High God. I am the apple of His eye. Jesus is my Savior, my Redeemer, my brother, my lover. I am blessed, I am graced, I am loved because I am a child of God. So what? So what does it mean to be a child of God? And so Paul continues to talk about this. He emphasizes that there's intimacy with God through the Holy Spirit. It's not merely head knowledge, but we experience it in our lives. The next verse says, Now, I say, as long as the heir is a child, the word child here is different from <clears throat> the, what he used earlier as sons and later. <clears throat> the, the other two places he talked about, huios, a, a full-grown son, a member of the family. The word child here is the little child. <clears throat> when you're a little child, even though you belong to a family, but you're not a full member. You have no rights to the wealth, you know, 
<clears throat> he says there's no different from a slave, even though you're the owner of everything, because you're still young. You haven't reached the age where you get the toga, the, the new clothes. He sold their under guardians and managers until the date set by the father, <clears throat> which could be between 14 years old to 25 years old. So also we, while we were children, were held in bondage under the elemental things of this world. When you haven't come of age, <clears throat> you cannot make your own decisions. Everything got to go through the guardians. It's a bit like uh, Britney Spears, right? You know, even in her 30s, she couldn't make any decision, financial decision. She had to go, go to her father, you know. Don't know what's wrong. Until only recently. So Paul is saying the same thing. He says, you haven't come of age. Uh, it's like when you were under the law. The law was the guardian to guide you. To guide you towards the Messiah. Now that Jesus has come, you no longer are slave. You are a full member of this family. And so the next verse, it says, but when the fullness of time came, the right time, God's time. God sent His Son. Now the Son has come, born under a woman. Why born under a woman? Remember Genesis 3? The seed of the woman will crush the head of the serpent. That's the beginning of God unfolding His redemptive plan. And so in Galatians, Paul is saying, you know, Jesus coming, He's not an afterthought. He's the fulfillment of this whole plan of salvation. He is born as a woman, under a woman, born under the law, so that He might redeem those who are under the law, that we might receive adoptions as sons. We become full member of this family. The Roman idea of adoption is a little different from ours. Today, we have no children. We feel like we have this need or we have ability, so we go look for one. Sometimes we look for really small ones so that, you know, less baggage. You know, the older they grow, maybe you're worried. But the Romans have a different view. They would go out to look for a teenager, maybe an older person who has abilities, who has potential to adopt them so that this person can get their name, their legacy, and they will take the person's debts and liabilities. It's like those Caesars, you know, Julius Caesar. They, they usually, they pass on the kings not to their own sons. They will adopt somebody, adopt a general, or adopt uh, someone with potential. But most of the time, it turns out bad, okay? But anyway, so the idea is now that you've come to my family, uh, you have full rights. Jesus takes on our debts and we have access to all that He has. And so, Scripture tells us as children of God, we are no longer debtors, no longer cursed. We receive new life. We are part of the family. Receive the Holy Spirit. Have supernatural birth. All this is in the book of Galatians. What we have, the rights as children of God. Now, do we experience this? Scripture says, as children of God, we have a future bodily resurrection, a place in the future, eternity with Christ, a special relationship. Again, we ask, really, man? Really got all these rights? Do we experience it? Because that's Paul's point in Galatians 4. It's not just hate knowledge, it's experiential because we have the Holy Spirit in us. It says, because you're sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son a Holy Spirit into our hearts crying, Abba, Father. Abba is the most basic utterance of a child, a baby. Papa, the intimacy, the reliance, the need. Therefore, you're no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, an heir through God. Here we see the, the Trinitarian God, God the Holy Spirit in us. Abba, Father, who is our Father, and Jesus' death and 
resurrection that enables us to have this intimate relationship. Sometimes when we go through difficult times, we feel like we're all alone. Nobody understands. But here he's saying, actually God knows. God is looking at us. Tony Campolo shares this story. He says when they were young, they were very poor. But his mother would always pay money to their neighbor's daughter to walk him to school and back. So at eight years old, he told his mother, he says, how about this? If I can go to school and come back myself, why don't you give me the money instead? So after much persuasion, his mother agreed. The next day, he was excited. You know, he put on his bag, uh, came to the road, looked left and right, left and right, make sure there are no cars, crossed the road, walked up six, uh, six blocks to the school. When he came, out, came back from school, he walked straight home. Didn't stop for tidbits, didn't stop for ice cream, didn't stop to the, go to the playground, just made sure he made his way back. So he was really proud of himself. Many years later, in a family gathering, he bragged. He says, you know, when I was young, I was so independent. I went to school myself. And it was then that his mother laughed. His mother said, do you really believe you're all alone by yourself? You know, every day I was behind you. From the moment you leave home, I will follow you from behind uh, far enough so that you do not notice. 3.30pm every afternoon, I will be at the school gate waiting for you. Sometimes we think we're all alone in our bad times. Or even our good times, you know, we think, I have this ability, I did this by myself, uh, how great I am. But actually, God is watching over us. How do we know? We have the Holy Spirit in us that draws us near, that gives us this intimate relationship. Sometimes it's through reading Scripture, in worship, in prayers. You know, we are so moved. The Gospel of Luke describes it as our hearts are strangely warmed. You know God is speaking to you. He's our Abba Father. This past church retreat, there was this part, uh, the preacher, I can't remember what he was saying, but you know, I was so moved. I felt like, oh, God understands what I'm going through. And I started to tear up. And then I looked to my wife, hey, she also tearing up. So clearly God spoke to us about the same thing. It's the Holy Spirit telling us God understands. God is your Father. And so friends, I don't know what you are going through what you're struggling, where you feel like you're all alone, you're not alone. Scripture tells us the Holy Spirit is in us to point us to God who is our Father. And of course, he also goes on to say we need a community. In, in chapter 6, it says we need a community of faith to journey together. You know, in good times, we build that relationship so that when you have needs, you find that you have support. Sometimes people will ask, you know, where is the church where I'm going through this? Well, I would say that's unfortunate, but sometimes if you don't take the effort to build relationship, you know when you're going through tough times, people don't know how to support you. Sometimes they're even afraid to ask. So it's important for us to also get rooted in the community. Here, Scripture tells us it's the Holy Spirit that calls us towards Abba Father. See, however, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those which by nature were no gods. You know, before Christ came, you rely on the law, you turn to idols. But now that you have come to know God, or rather be known by God, how is it you turn back again to the weak and worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved again? Remember, the whole book of Galatians is that the Jewish people came to Galatia and told the Christians, it's good that you have faith in Jesus, but you still need to keep the law, to be circumcised, to, to keep the Sabbath. 
And here it is saying it's not. You know why are you turning back? That's why later after verse 11, next week you will see the, the gospel and the law. Here he's saying that you know God, but more importantly, God knows you. You know, sometimes we think uh, we know God is a blessing. We go through tough times, we hang on to God. But really, it is God hanging on to us. We know God, but more importantly, God knows us through Christ. He says, why are you turning back to all these things? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. All the efforts have been wasted. The Christian faith, we don't have holy days. We don't have holy things. We don't have holy places. We only have a holy God and a holy people. So how do we live out that holiness? It's not that we touch certain things and all the unholiness come inside us. Scripture says holy, unholiness, sin comes from our hearts. Now, of course, there's wisdom, right? If you don't keep certain friends, you don't go certain places, there's wisdom because we are maybe influenced. But sin comes from inside, not external. So this whole text is about our relationship with God. Who God is. God is our Father. Do you understand that? Do you experience that? That's why J.I. Packer, a well-known theologian, he says, you sum the whole of the New Testament teaching if you describe it as knowledge of God as one Holy Father. He says you can sum up this whole New Testament in this idea that God is your Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child, of having God as his Father. To the extent we experience God as our Father is to the extent we understand our Christian faith. If it, this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook of life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. What does it mean to you that God is your Father? Sometimes for some of us, it's hard to imagine, especially if we don't have a close relationship with our own Father. As I was thinking about this, I thought, what can describe the heart of the Father for us? And I thought of uh, pa young parents with kids, you know. What do they have in common, especially when they have their first child? Take out the handphone, right? Record them. Say, oh, look, this is my child. First thing, the first step, or the first words, and they're so excited going around showing their friends. And then when you look at the video clip, it's like, actually, the baby is not saying anything, you know. No, the mother thinks, oh, they're saying this, the first words. And while I laugh, you know, I'm also like that, you know. When my kids were 10 months old, we came back from the States, right? Flew 27 hours. They cried for 27 hours. I went up the plane with two kids. I almost came down with one. Because I, I was so driven mad. I, I took a pillow and smothered one of them, you know, until I came to my senses. Anyway, I came home, lived with my in-laws, okay? Then I went out. One day, I came back, and my wife was really excited, and my mother-in-law was very excited. She said, hey, your son spoke. The first words, what was his first words? Is it Dada? He says, no, it's Yaya. Duck. Because he was playing with this toy duck, you know, this little duck. And my wife wanted to show me the clip, so I looked at the clip, and the clip was my son, just, just playing with the, the, the toy. And he didn't say a single word. You know, he was just playing with the toy. But in the background, I hear these two women's voice going, duck, 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 look here, duck, duck, duck. 
if you had a camera taking a picture of two of them, I think it would be really hilarious. But that's how parents feel. We're so proud. We cannot wait for our kids to take their first step to, to, to speak. And perhaps, perhaps that is how God views us. He can't wait for us to utter our first word of prayers, to turn to Him, to rely on Him, to take the first step of faith. Can we imagine God as our Father? He is with us. He cannot bear to see you walk through your own valley of darkness by yourself. You know, there's this clip on YouTube. It's about the 1992 Barcelona Olympics. In the 400 meters race, there was this UK runner, sprinter called Derek Redman. You know, he had great hopes to come in the top three. This was during the semi-finals. Um, the race started, he was running ahead, and then suddenly he felt a sharp pain on his right thigh, and he fell onto the track. So the whole stadium just gasped. He realized he tore his right hamstring. So he fought to stand up and started hobbling. So as the uh, photographers gathered around him, suddenly you see this big, big black man wearing a t-shirt, hurdling down over the barriers of the uh, spectator stands, running onto the track. And even though he was really big, he was very agile because the security guard tried to stop him and he, he managed to get around them. He ran up to Redmond and embraced him. Now, he was Derek Redmond's father. And so his dad says, Derek, you don't have to do this. And his son was weeping and his son said, I have to finish this race. And his father replied, well, if you have to finish it, let us do it together. So the dad grabbed him, pulled him up, and they hobbled step by step, making sure they kept in the lane so he's not disqualified until they crossed the finishing line. That day, Derek Redmond didn't leave with a medal, but he left with a far more valuable experience, a knowledge of his father's love. His father couldn't bear to see him suffer on the track and be a passive spectator in the stand. They rushed onto the tracks to come beside his son, and that is what God did for us. He couldn't bear to see us suffer in our misery, to be lost. Then He ripped apart the fabric of time and space to enter His creation, sending His Son, Jesus Christ, in the incarnation. In the death and resurrection of Jesus, Jesus sent the paraclete, the Holy Spirit, which means comforter, the helper to live in us. That's holding us, embracing us, walking step by step, till we cross the finishing line. That is what Galatians 4, 6 and 7 tells us. Because of the Holy Spirit, we call God our Abba. It's not just head knowledge, it's experiential. We can lead to Him. We know He's there. And if it is true that you and I, we are children of God, how do we live lives worthy of that name? You know, do we forgive people? How we treat our work what is our testimony in our homes? Do we lead lives worthy to be called a child of God? Philip Yancey, he, talks, he shares this story about Arun Gandhi. Arun Gandhi is, of course, the grandson of Mahatma, Mahatma Gandhi. His own father, uh, because he fought for democracy, was in prison for 16 years, money like Gandhi. Anyway, when Arun first got his driver's license, he drove to the town to watch a movie. 
He was supposed to meet his father after that. But then he watched the second movie. So by the time he met his father, he was late. So he just found a, a, an excuse. He lied. And his father knew he was lying. So the dad and him, they drove out of town. And then the father put the car over and turned to his son and said, Son, I need time to reflect on my failure as a father. Why is it that my son feels the need to lie to me? So for the next six hours, he walked home. So Arun, of course, drove behind his father, you know, and turned the headlights on to, to shine the road. And when Yancy heard this story, he says, Arun, your dad is really good at uh, emotional blackmail. <laughs> he says, no. Immediately the son retorted, says, no, you don't know my father. My father is a great man. When I grow up, I want to be like him. He was sincere in wanting to reflect. What he said, he said, I learned a, the biggest lesson of my life that day because that was the last lie I ever told. So what Arun was saying is that he understands being a child of his father, what it means. He wants to please his father. He wants to lead a life worthy of being called his father's son. What about us? You know, the gospel tells us we live by grace. Yes, we have struggles, we have doubts, but the grace of God sustains us. We need to respond by faith. And of course, this faith is not just God in my own life. It's God through me being a blessing to others. The Abrahamic promise, all nations will be blessed. Who is this God? He's not someone who is far away or uncaring. He came into our lives, into this world, so that we may know Him with the Holy Spirit in us. Do we live lives worthy to be called children of God? So I ask you this question, who are you? How would you answer? Who am I? I'm Isaac Ting, right? I'm a father to my twins. You know, I had infertility problems, so maybe I shouldn't have children, but I have. So clearly, they are God's gifts to me. Even though sometimes I wonder, really, are they gifts? You know? I don't think I am a good father. You know, I feel I fall short of being a father. Um, I lose my temper. I raise my voice. I say things I shouldn't say. I do things I shouldn't do. I traumatize them. Even now, they still remember. Who am I? I'm the husband to my wife. And I think, poor thing, you know, since she married me, her whole life turned upside down. Uh, I moved to the other side of the world. I moved back. We moved seven, eight times in our lives. Every time we move, go through transition, there's uncertainty. She don't know what she's going to do. She just has to sacrifice. And you know I'm not the kind, thoughtful, patient kind, right? And especially, you know, if there's a le lizard, suddenly she looks around, eh, I'm gone, you know, I'm not in front of her, I'm hiding somewhere. <laughs> Who am I? I'm a son to my parents, my aged parents. You know, I was raised by my grandmother. After I became a Christian, I sought to reconcile with my parents, uh, build a relationship, and over the last 30 over years, they became Christians also. So I thought, you know, I have a decent relationship with my parents. But God knew better. So 10 years ago, He brought me back from the States to reveal to me how much more I need to forgive, how much more I need to respond to them. You know, this week, I received news, my dad has cancer. He has already survived three strokes, so I don't know how is he going to deal with this. But more importantly, as I reflect, you know, the next, however, how much time I have, how would I live as his son? I realize, you know, I'm more than willing to support them financially. Being the only child, I've long accepted this truth. I'm more than willing to be there physically, drive them here and there, buy things for them. But I'm not willing 
to be there emotionally. You need money, tell me, that's fine, I'll come out of it somehow. You need help, I'll be there to help. But don't make me sit there and just listen to you blab on. Think about how you treated me when I was young. I don't think I'm a good son. Who am I? Well, I'm a pastor. Being a pastor is a privilege. It's a joy to be able to maybe journey with some of us through the darkest times of your life. To be able to feed God's sheep. But you know, I never set out to be a spiritual leader. To me, if I can be a faithful Christian, that is really very good. I never thought of going to lead people spiritually. All I knew was that Christ loved me so much that my only reasonable response is to lay my life down and look at what that got me. Who am I? I'm a father, I'm a son, or rather I'm a father, I'm a son to my parents, I'm a husband, I'm a pastor. These are the most important roles in my life. In fact, I have a mission statement to my life that defined what my life is about in these four areas. But you know what? That is not who I am. 